Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking sustainable aviation fuel, SAF. Similar to renewable diesel and using the same process, it takes renewable feedstocks from tallows, oils, oil seeds, and converts it to an almost chemically identical fuel to that of oil-derived jet fuel. And jet fuel consumption is forecast to rise significantly over the next 40 years, with no alternative solution in place. Unlike other forms of transportation, aviation is going to prove very hard to abate and decarbonize. So what to do? That's where sustainable aviation fuel comes in. And in this episode, we have a look at what it is, What's the demand? What are the challenges in production? And where could this market go? Our guest is Steve Moore. Steve is the chairman at Calumet, a specialty hydrocarbon product manufacturer, and now a leading manufacturer of renewable diesel, and shortly to be the same in sustainable aviation fuel. Steve is also the chairman at Climco, a leading decarbonization management firm and consultancy. Steve had a long career in oil and oil products trading, latterly heading it up for coke as always you can support the show by please leaving us a review on the platform you're listening on and indeed sharing with your colleagues and as always i hope you enjoy the episode steve welcome to the show thanks paul it's uh, great to be here with you so we are talking today at saf or sustainable aviation fuel I guess we should start at the start, which is really the jet market. Can you just give us a an overview of jet fuel, the jet market? And, and I think that will help set up why SAF might have a very significant role in this sector. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. Happy to do that. And I think across the transportation sector, this has the most, the largest decarbonization challenge. So the jet market today, EIA puts the jet market today at about uh, 6.9 million barrels a day of jet fuel demand. But one of the things that I think really differentiates jet is it's clearly a rapidly growing market. So EIA, for example,'s demand forecast for 2050 would be 15 million barrels a day of jet. So you can see that there's a lot of growth in the aviation market. I think it's a particularly interesting challenge if you think about it, because um, you know we've got a lot of hydrocarbon specialists listening to this podcast, and they know that to make jet, you know, the, the bulk of jet is just distilled straight out of crude oil. I mean, you can't, there are other ways you can make jet, but that's where it comes from. So if we look forward and with decarbonization, expect crude runs to, to decline from where they are today, then kind of the percentage of, of jet that's going to come out of, of the remaining crude oil slates w- will have to go up a lot. And I think that that's quite challenging um, for those of you with an engineering background. So, so it's actually the same, interestingly, in the asphalt market, where if you talk to a lot of asphalt marketers, they're quite concerned about where asphalt's going to come from as crude processing starts to decline, which we all expect it will. So you've got a really strong growth vector in jet. And even within the context of decarbonization, a question as to where we'll get conventional jet, let alone SAF. Yeah, we've got a few episodes coming up on this, kind of trying to thread that needle of demand versus supply with some senior economists and senior leaders thinking on this in the in the energy industry because that is significant right so just 
is you know why is it so hard because it is probably pertinent why is it so hard to get more jet out of a of the barrel even if you aren't losing a significant number of barrels forecasted from the lack of investment in supply right so i mean at the highest level really the the, the primary way to access it you know jet jet is described like diesel as a middle distillate and so you know the front end of the crude oil a refining process is just boiling out these different fractions right so the majority of jet just comes purely from from that fraction being boiled off. Now you could then take some of the heavier molecules and convert them mainly through through hydrocracking to to make more jet, and there are different ways to do it. But the reality with jet and with diesel is that there's a lot less different ways that you can get to the final product than you can through making gasoline. So as gasoline demand contracts and and the need to boil less crude becomes there then you know that just simply reduces the pure molecule math and and availability so you know i think that's going to be a, a, an interesting part of the the overall challenge here mm. and presumably as well means that jet fuel prices are going to increase which is going to be important for this story of economics and costs we're about to tell okay so let's so that's the jet market and you mm -hmm. can see a very clear increasing demand from that mm -hmm. um which also has its intended impacts on greenhouse gas emissions which we'll come on to the next set of i guess the, i want to move on to definitions here right. so we are talking saf okay sustainable aviation fuel how does that differ from renewable diesel that we've covered previously, ethanol, biodiesel, et cetera, the other forms of renewable biofuels that are going into, into cars or et cetera? Okay. So chemically, as, as renewable diesel is to diesel, so SAF would be to, to jet fuel in effect. Renewable diesel is, is you know, kind of chemically pretty much identical to regular uh, fossil diesel. It, it tends to be more paraffinic in nature, but but you know we don't need to go too far down the chemistry rabbit hole. It's also actually somewhat cleaner and better burning than regular fossil diesel. So it's interesting if you talk to major truck operators, they, they'll say that their maintenance costs for using renewable diesel as a pure drop-in fuel to replace regular diesel reduces their maintenance costs. SAF is, is the same in theory. Um, obviously, when you look at adoption, of, of a fuel that's chemically identical in a drop-in, you really want to make sure that if you're flying at 32,000 foot somewhere over Kamchatka, that you don't have uh, a problem with your <laughs> yeah. fuel. Yeah. Um, so, so or, or for that matter, that your your batteries, if you're in an electric plane, run out. So clearly, there's a lot more kind of stringency and need to be really, really confident uh, about quality. So the way SAP is entering the market right now typically is as a blend with fossil. And the most typical blend uh, that we see is a one-third renewable, two-third fossil. And, you know, at this point in time, with not that much SAF in the market, that makes kind of a very logical entry point. But, but you will kind of get SAF mixed up because some people will talk about the fossil renewable blend as SAF, and some people will talk about solely the renewable as SAF. But, but at the highest level, you know, unlike biodiesel or unlike ethanol, both renewable diesel and, and sustainable aviation fuel are effectively pure drop-in fuels that you could move through the existing distribution infrastructure and put either into an engine or into the wing, and they would perform as well or better than their fossil equivalents. Yeah, yeah. There are some slight differences, right, in terms of some of the sort of the, I guess, the 
pollutants or sort of some of the the variation within those fuels that have an impact on seals and stuff that perhaps we'll come back to but just staying at that high level um, mm-hmm. and a, as a reminder for listeners that, or people who didn't hear that the episode that we did on renewable diesel with jay hackett just how, how you know what are the feedstocks what's the chemical process how big are these facilities that that create you know in terms of dollar value saf can you just give us a, a setup of the 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 actual supply chain because it's going to be pertinent as well Absolutely. So there are a number of ways in theory to make SAF, but I would say that uh, you could probably divide them into, into two buckets, just as you probably could for renewable diesel, right? So the first would be, you know, the proven existing technology that's being used to make significant quantities of renewable diesel and some SAF today, which is converting, you know, fats, oils, and greases through hydrogenation in, into the fuels. The other area, which, you know, is more of the new frontier, is more of what's often described, and there are different ways of doing this as a, as a syngas synthesis. So this is maybe taking an, an ethanol, a route through ethanol, often using you know waste to to make that ethanol and go in that direction. But those are really the two the two main streams, and and I'm not an expert on on the second area, which as I say is there's a lot of people working on, but looks like it's operating under a much longer timeline than the approach of using fat oils and greases, which allows us to produce SAF and RD today at scale, economically, and start the decarbonization process right away. Perfect. Okay, so you've mentioned batteries. We've we've sort mm-hmm. of set up this growing demand for jet fuel. The the sort of the thesis here is that non-marine transportation, this heavy transportation, and in particular airplanes, are going to be a hard to abate sector. Mm-hmm. So can you set us up with what the current the carbon footprint of this sector is relative to others and why you know obviously strategically this has been a focus for you in your professional career recently with Calumet why why is SAF got the strategic tailwinds behind it Absolutely So maybe a good place to start would be you know IATA which is the trade association for the airline industry recently published a, a net zero study which really looks about how the airline industry can can reach uh, net zero by 2050, which is quite a ways away. And I think the fact that they were operating with that long time frame in itself shows some of the challenges. So IATA estimates that between now and 2050, the airline industry will emit 21.2 gigatons of CO2. In their frame up as to how this industry reaches net zero in 2050, they see really four ways that it's going to happen. They think that 65% of uh, the reductions will come from SAF, 13% from new technologies, 3% from efficiencies, and 11% from offsets. And um, you know, I think the fact that they continue to have offsets in the mix in 2050 indicates that this is a challenge to get the decarbonization math to work without, without using offsets, which personally, I think are a very effective way to go about things, but but it demonstrates that the airline industry can't do it all by themselves. So coming back to batteries, let, let me go in directly. So SAF, if we're 65% SAF in the airline industry in 2050, then, then we would need global SAF production using that EIA estimate I shared earlier of just under 10 million barrels a day of SAF. Today's production in the United States is less, including what we're bringing online uh, in the next few weeks is less than 5,000 barrels a day. So, so you can see there's a huge SAF gap. And then through the 13% new technologies, you can see you know, IATA's concern 
that moving to electric is extremely challenging uh, for planes. And, and the two, you know, the main reasons behind that obviously are reliability, energy density, and the fact that the mass of a fuel plane is much less by the time it lands than when it takes off, which is not the case for batteries. I mean, we can talk a little bit more about energy density if, if that's useful, Paul, but to me, that would be the kind of the core reason why batteries are super difficult in this space. I'm sure things will evolve. Uh, I'm sure technology will evolve. I'm sure it will play an important part of the solution. It, it just probably relies on, on something other than the current form, you know, lithium ion form, right? Just with those, the, just the pure mechanics of the weight involved. And there are obviously currently, you know, a, a couple of trials, I think one out of Israel, you know, but relatively small planes. And as you say, sort of there's a, when things, when the, when the autopilot on the electric car shuts off currently, it can have disastrous consequences, but, uh, when it when that happens with the plane, it's an altogether different level of standard, right? Yeah, and and so yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think you know th this is an important part of the energy transition debate. Simply in the context of, I think that it, it's a bad idea for any of us to pick one solution and say this is the solution, and all the other solutions suck. The reality is that you know transition is a really challenging issue. I just talked about just the scale of the transition required in aviation. And, and I think, um, and like a lot of your recent interviewer, interviewees have said, this is an all the, all the above situation. Batteries will play a role. SAF will play a role. This is the biggest transportation decarbonization challenge, I think, that's out there. And it's going to require everybody innovating and investing to accomplish this. In line with that, with, with the comment on sort of, you know, battling technologies, of course, you know, the environment has changed quite significantly. We've highlighted it a couple of times, Jeff Curry did, uh, you and I have discussed it in terms of cost of capital, interest rates, you know, the, the expected returns now. And we're also talking a trillion dollar shift and the attendant infrastructure that has to go into changing wholesale supplies, right? So we're seeing that, you know, as, as we're trying to creep towards electrifying, you know, our roads so that people can charge and it's not sort of a terrifying experience of, of range anxiety. There's, there's significant benefits of here as well, because other than sort of the, the in quotes refinery, everything else can largely stay the same in the existing infrastructure if we were to try and switch to SAF, which again, there's a long way to go to start meeting the, the barrels required. No, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And, and you, can, you can see this happening already in, um, uh, you know, I think a perfect example of this actually is one that, that I'm, I'm involved in. Uh, it's a company called Zenith Energy, which is a large terminal operator in the US. And, and there what we've done is, you know, we have a terminal in Portland, Oregon, you know, which is not the most fossil favorable environment you can operate in, as you would imagine. And we've really very much, you know, converting that to a renewable diesel and, and SAF hub. And so relatively low capital costs, we convert existing, you know, rail facilities, existing barge loading, existing tanks. So none of this kind of extractive burden of having to dig up a bunch of stuff, none of this capital burden that, that you talked about which I think the capital burden is a very important issue. You know, really, Paul, I mean, it was only a year ago that money was almost still free from an interest rate perspective. And as you touched on, and I think Jeff really talked about very well, we're no longer there. So the massive capital intensity of some solutions and the low capital intensity of, of converting existing refineries, using existing rail cars, moving it to existing terminals and using the existing distribution on airport into wing 
And, and I think also importantly, using the existing uh, airline fleet, airplane fleet too, as well. I mean, airplanes are darn expensive. And so there's this huge capital efficiency behind using the concept of using a drop-in fuel that, that basically behaves as or better than existing products rather than just completely rebuilding the entire infrastructure of a, an entire production and transportation sector. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Because it takes 10, 15 years to get a new Boeing or Airbus to market, right? I mean, and then you've got, you know, I mean, it's it's no small thing, civilian aviation, even military aviation, right, to, to design, approve, test these designs. And, you know, we can't have a period, the world wouldn't accept a period where we're sort of a whole bunch of, you know, alternative aviation technologies, you know, we're waiting 10 years for them to come online, you know, so actually, even if, even were we to develop that future technology to get batteries into aviation, it's still 20 years off, right? So you've still got a long runway here, uh, at least a lifetime of these facilities where they're going to be in high demand, I assume. Yeah, I, I think that's very much the way we, we would look at it. And, and all I would add to that is, so so here, are, you know, if you want to decarbonize, here are your options. You can start using sustainable aviation fuel today, which maybe, you know, from a carbon intensity standpoint is between a quarter and a third of the total emissions of burning fossil jet fuel. In other words, you can create a very substantial immediate emission reduction, or you can say that's not good enough. I'm going to you know, sit around for the next 10 years and hope I can find the capital and, and hope my technology works. And then I can actually produce a, a zero carbon product. Well, I assume the world will go to zero carbon, but I look at it and say an immediate reduction to a quarter or a third of the, of the emissions today is, in my opinion, a, a pretty decent way station. Yeah. And one that, you know, makes the whole world, I think, a little more anti-fragile uh, in terms of the whole decarbonization process. Yeah, this is the, we're better off putting money into stopping burning coal than trying to tackle hydrogen, right? Uh, in, in, if you want to make an immediate impact. Exactly. Okay, so we just need to go, we've not cracked kind of the feedstocks aspect, because there are obviously challenges here, not least one of scale. Mm -hmm. There are some chemical challenges as well. But let's, you know, what are the, you, you've given us kind of a high level, and we, we, you know, but what are the feedstocks that you can lean on to generate sustainable aviation fuel? Okay, so significant amount of, of uh, RD and SAF, uh, you know, are produced from used cooking oil. And then, you know, animal fats, so tallows and greases from the, you know, which are a waste product from the animal chain. Uh, distillers corn oil is uh, a significant provider, you know, which is a by byproduct of, of uh, ethanol production. Uh, and then, you know, you have the basic oils, you have canola oil, which was just accepted by EPA for production and, uh, and soybean oil. And then finally, I think there's the new frontier as well, which, which we think, um, although it doesn't play a huge role today, probably within three or four years will. And, and these are oil seeds that are not suitable for food use at all. And, um, camelina is a perfect example of that. And, um, just by fortunate, pure, dumb luck, the location of our facility in Montana sits right between the canola belt to the north of us and the wheat belt to the south of us. And camelina, which is a non, um, non-food oilseed, is the perfect uh, seasonal rotational and cover crop for wheat. So, you know, we expect by 24, 25, 26, probably by 25, 26, that some of these non-food oilseeds will be playing a material role and we're perfectly located uh, 
to leverage that in our production system. Yeah, because, you know, and we, we, this is not necessarily the place to get into the food versus fuel debate. And I think that's partly the point about SAF is that it's solving a problem that's very clear as opposed to perhaps replacing you know, in renewable diesel where you can get some distortions. I, I, don't, I don't want to comment on this, but in, in other biofuels, you can get some policy distortions that, you know, net net, are they actually decarbonizing? But I assume there isn't enough animal tallow and grease and used cooking oil to meet the 10 million barrels you mentioned earlier. Right. So that's the case. And I think that's why, again, you know, a couple of things, Paul, I, I would come back to my original thing that, you know, the decarbonization process should be a broad tent. So, you know, these syngas processes, which are relatively unproven and, you know, require significant capital, you know, I would expect that they probably, you know, never fade a good engineer, right? We'll make a lot of technological progress here. And, and so some of those less proven, more expensive technologies will become a lot more proven you know, and a lot less expensive. So, you know, I think I think the way it will be managed is you know, all, all the above. And and I think without kind of getting deep into this debate, I, I, I throw out a couple of things just people to put in perspective. So so let me take you back to 1976, Paul, and I'm sitting in middle school somewhere in East Anglia, and I learn about Thomas Malthus. And, um, you know, we see, uh, you know, a tremendous particularly in the media, I think a tremendous kind of Malthusian approach to the world. So my geography teacher in 1976 was telling me how there's just not enough resources to go around. And, uh, and you know, this is going to cause wholesale famine and so on and so forth. Since then, the population of the world has doubled. And if we'd sat in that room in 1976 and said, that, you know, the world is going to, population is, is going to double and we're going to be generally very successful in feeding that population, um, no one would have believed us. So I, I think the you know Malthusian view. He, he was right uh, in the 18th isn't... century, right? Yes, and and and, we, and there's always. I mean, he's he's conceptually right in that there are there are at some point going to be barriers, but every to date, you know, those those have been smashed through with technology. Yeah, soybean, uh, for example, soybean productivity is is up a ten percent on average yields in the last ten years. Brazil just had a record soybean crop. And uh, wheat prices today are below where they were before Russia invaded the Ukraine. So, you know, we have a lot of kind of market related people here who I think have a sophisticated understanding of, of how markets can, can help and manage a lot of these issues. Just staying on the feedstocks at the moment, the one of the things kind of you, you and this is, seems to be common to renewable diesel as well, is that the, the challenge here is not demand. There is, there's great demand, even at the current economics, which we need to get into. It, it, it's actually around making sure that you've got the, the, the spigot flows in terms of feedstocks. And one of those transitions, I think Walter Cronin mentioned on the previous episode on biofuels, was obviously a lot of these energy guys are kind of moving from a world where there's no seasonality, you know, the oil flows come what may, to moving to a crop-based or more intermittent supply of feedstocks and the challenges there. Can you just help us understand a little bit of that world of, of how concerned and how crucial it is from a locational standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, that organizations are very zeroed in on how and where they're going to get their feedstock? It's a great question. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on ags. I've, I've, I've traded some ags in, in my past life. 
with you know we're just kind of like a relatively small you know primarily specialty product producer that that got into renewable diesel and, and SAF kind of by accident and we've been very lucky on the feedstock side because you know we're, we're located in in Montana and you know there's an entire kind of tempered oil seed belt based around canola and a very major animal uh, farming area around us particularly up up into Canada and and to be honest our, our experience Paul, has been been pretty simple i mean you know we have a good a good feeds team but we went to potential suppliers throughout pacific northwest and saskatchewan and, and alberta and and basically said we're around the corner. Maybe we're a truck drive away from you. Your alternative right now. I mean, I think it's surprising. Uh, Canada exports over a hundred thousand barrels a day of canola oil, right? So, I mean, it, it's huge, and most of it goes on train to Vancouver or uh, or the Pacific Northwest, and then goes on a boat, and then goes all the way across the Pacific. So, although you talked about the kind of the intermittency of of the supply side, well, one of the challenges that farmers have to make, and I think you know. I think all of us who work with farmers know they're very economically savvy people who respond to market signals very quickly, is they have intermittency of demand as well, Paul. And to be honest, being located just up the street and running this facility every day and being a reliable and consistent off-taker and, not, and people not wanting to put their product on a, uh, you know, on a supply chain of thousands of miles where they're kind of then competing with you know, Indonesian palm oil and other products. Uh, has meant that people are really happy and eager to sell to us. So I know people get very fixated on the on the supply side, but to be honest, maybe just because of our location in Montana, or maybe we're just lucky. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, you are in a very blessed location, and that's clearly, you know, uh, obviously a strategic decision and, and, and part of the success. I mean, I guess just more broadly, though, that can't be the same story in Europe in other regions i mean how how much is this going to be limited by you know these few sweet spots uh, very much a north america story perhaps or is that are we going to see an attendant sort of professionalization of waste oil collection i mean if you th I think if you matter up the amount of waste oil that my kids keep trying to throw down the drain mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to me telling them to put it in the bin you know <laughs> you could probably you can probably fuel a plane for a year <laughs> <laughs> like beyond kind of those specifics around montana renewables right you know how does this story expand globally and what do you think the consequent challenge you know changes are going to be in supply is now the best time on earth to set up the amazon of waste oil collection yeah i mean clearly you're seeing a lot of consolidation in the waste oil market kind of consistent with what you're saying paul and it's interesting. So being, you know, an old downstream oil guy, it's really interesting to see similar themes play out in, in renewables. And, and one of the ones we could talk about maybe a little bit later is, is the location of, of processing facilities. But I think there's a great analogy between waste cooking oil, used cooking oil collection and used motor oil collection. So both of these industries started out as people were, you know, very often actually charging to come and collect these products. And then they were amassed and aggregated, like you said, and then reprocessed. And what we saw in, in used motor oil was, you know, everybody saw this huge opportunity. People would come and take you, pay you to take this stuff. You could clean it up relatively easily and then you could, could resell it and, and make a lot of money. So lo and behold, a lot more people then entered, entered that market rapidly. 
and we got to a point then when people started to pay to collect used motor oil. And, and since then, although it's been a good business at times, you know, it, it's uh, not been a stupendous return on capital business. So used cooking oil to me feels very much the same, right? We're seeing consolidation. And the question now is who gets the rent, right? So some of the rent will now, more rent will accrue to the people who produce the used cooking oil because there's more competition to collect used cooking oil. A lot of the rent, I think, will stay with with the uh, with then the aggregator rather than the processor. So we look at it, for example, in the Gulf Coast, um, you know, where there's a lot of renewable diesel projects and, and and some SAP projects associated. And and if you get into and this is just the same as in in the used motor oil market. If you're in a location where there's multiple potential buyers, then the profit gets sucked out of that. So we, we look at used cooking oil right now, and and you've seen this in a lot of people's earnings announcements that. Um, we're reaching what what we term here in Montana Renewables as carbon intensity parity. So if you've got three or four people all bidding uh, for used cooking oil to process in the Gulf Coast, then lo and behold, pretty much all the value then accrues not to them. It accrues to people further upstream in the process. You see that in used motor oil. And then you see in used motor oil, if you're in a unique location, where there's not where there's less competition to buy the product or the alternatives are, are further away, then there's still uh, an advantage. So, so probably going on too much here, but while I'm on a roll, if you'll indulge me, th- this is very, very similar to the refining industry over the last 30 to 40 years in the US. So if you go back 30 years, which sadly I can remember. I think you're overdating yourself <laughs> here. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're only a couple of years older than me. <laughs> But uh, so if you go back to that period, everybody said, well, you know, there's lots of heavy sour crude available, brackets, used cooking oil, and we need to build an infrastructure, including cocos for my Gulf Coast refinery. So Gulf Coast went out and overbuilt cocos. And lo and behold, kind of the margin from processing heavy sour crude rapidly moved towards the same margin as processing any crude. So in the, you know, in the Gulf Coast, where you've got a large refining market, as long as you don't have a huge surplus, you know, like we did a few years ago of, of, of light sweet crude because of shale, then the relative profitability of all your feedstocks tends to become the same. And, and I would argue in kind of the Mississippi River corridor, that's probably exactly what we're seeing in the RD SAF market. Now, at the same time, the best place to be in refining almost all the time in the United States has to be in the northern tier where you're closest to the Canadian crude oil supply, so you have a transportation advantage, and where the product markets are higher value. And, and that's totally analogous, I think, to where, where we are in Montana today. We're right near a massive export market for greases, oils, and fats. As I say, you know, well in excess of 100,000 barrels a day of product kind of moving by rail car past our facility each and every day. Um, that's analogous to Canadian crude. And then, the high value markets. Now, high value petroleum markets in the Rockies are because it's, you know, the furthest away from a supply chain. It's a little different for renewable diesel and SAF because what it is, is we're, we are, you know, proximate to all the low carbon markets on, on the West Coast, British Columbia, and the whole, the whole of Canada. But I think the refining, I probably went too far here, but the refining analogies, I think, stand up pretty strongly, whether it's on, on uh, feedstock or, or product marketing. The HC Insider Podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. 
To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Let's now move on, I guess, to the heart of the matter, which is always going to come down to economics, supply and demand, and then throwing in the policy support or the government distortions, depending on where you're coming from and on your on the on the on the market scale. The just just and correct me if I'm wrong here, but roughly speaking, you know, SAF at the moment is twice the price of standard jet fuel. Is that a fair sort of worldwide sort of rule of thumb? Uh, I don't think it's you're radically far off that. That makes sense, you know. Obviously, for all sorts of reasons, given the sort of the nascent stage of the technology and you know the competing for feedstocks, etc. Yeah. Even with that cost differential and co- and fuel being one of the most you know the the, the highest variable cost that a, a flight uh, you know airlines mm-hmm. have, what is demand? What's the demand picture right now, and and what's behind that? It's a really good question. I think it would be fair. As I said earlier, I, th- I think North American SAF production, even when, so we, we'll be up in the very near future producing 2,000 barrels a day, which makes us the largest SAF producer in, in North America. It's not a lot of volume, right? So let's be very conservative on the high side and say SAF production in North America is, well, let's just say it's below 5,000 barrels a day, even when we're up and running. So supply is very, very nascent. And demand is that. Uh, clearly, and um, you know, we sold all our SAF uh, at a substantial premium to renewable diesel. Obviously, you know, SAF and renewable diesel have some degree of blending interchangeability. So you would never sell SAF below renewable diesel because you would just sell renewable diesel, right? Uh, you just put it back in the in the RD pool. So we're we're at an interesting point in the market where, if you look at it today, we have relatively little supply, relatively little demand. But within that envelope, demand clearly exceeding supply. So you have that anchor point there, Paul, and then you have this anchor point in the future that we've talked about that if you look at IATA's numbers by 2050, we'll need to make almost 10 million barrels a day of SAF. And that looks extremely challenging for all the reasons that we've said. So what's the evolution path going to look like between today and and 2050? And, and, And that obviously is is a difficult question to answer. A couple of things I would put into that clearly are the decarbonization commitment of, of airlines and the even greater decarbonization commitment of particularly kind of shipping companies. I would say that if you think about, you know, one of the major airline freight companies, they have a ton of corporate customers who have very strong ESG commitments. So actually, I think the, uh, desire of a lot of the kind of shipping based companies to decarbonize might be even greater than, than many of the airlines. So I think it's, it's an unclear path, but there's a clear shortage of molecules. And, and this is why I think we, you know, we're rapidly looking at expansion and have already purchased a, a second reactor to potentially take us well north of 10,000 barrels a day of SAF, because at least over the next couple of years, we, we see the demand there and we see alternative sources of supply from breakthrough technologies as several years out and definitely made a lot more difficult by the fact that we no longer have zero interest money. So, so we see, you know, kind of a gaping hole here, at least for the next few years. 
that clearly supports SAF pricing as it is right now. Just to be very clear about this, at the moment, for the most part, these airlines are blending SAF in to their into standard jet, right? Yes. As opposed to we're seeing them run flights solely on SAF. Yes. Let's move into policy support because there are out of Scandinavia. There's there are um, they are setting goals in in the next few years for twenty five percent of flights to be on SAF, etc. I mean, you've got a multiple array here. You've obviously got mandates, but you also have carbon pricing, carbon taxes, depending on where you are. Some of those compliance, some of those currently voluntary. Are airlines? Are they, is there policy support right now that essentially that cost differential is being uh, ameliorated as a result of other schemes or indeed are there mandates out there that mean irrespective of that cost differential, they need to get on this? I think it's a bit of both. From a US perspective, what I would say is, you know, the, we moved before the Inflation Reduction Act, but the Inflation Reduction Act provides a much clearer path that makes, you know, SAF production viable. And this, I'll be, I'll be clear about it. I mean, you know, these projects, SAF, RD, biodiesel, are, are currently only work economically because of combination of, of, of mandates and, uh, and support, right? The IRA clearly makes that a lot clearer. And I think will make other people who've been hanging back on SAF move into SAF. I think that will actually happen less than maybe people expect. Uh, and I can talk about why if, if that's a, somewhere we want to go. But the reality also is today that at these relatively low levels of SAF, there are people who are are clearly prepared to pay the current higher market clearing price for SAF. Now, how all that kind of winds together over the next few years and how much the market's willing to pay relative to how government policy interlocks, I'll be honest, I really, you know, I'm, I'm not the expert there and i don't know um Mm. you know as a former trader the one thing i know is the molecule balances don't work uh as a former trader i've tried to stay out of government policy so i know the molecule balance can you dig into that sorry that molecule imbalance just what you mean by that and then with staying on the ira you've got this dollar 50 tax credit per gallon Mm-hmm. Just talk a little bit about what you think the impact is and how that might sort of potentially not be what is expected. I mean, to me, the molecule the balance is, isn't really more than just a, I look at what I see demand for SAF appears to be over the next couple of years from, from talking to potential customers. And I look at, uh, at what people's solutions are to supplying that SAF. And there's more interest and more desire than solutions. I mean, it, again, if you, if you look at solutions in the next couple of years to SAF, I, you know, I think these technological breakthrough approaches aren't going to put much of a dent in demand for the next few years. You know, people have got commitments for 2025 and 2030, and I don't think many of them actually have a current solution as to how to get there. So, so that's kind of closed. I think that we'll see other, in North America anyway, you know, obviously there's a lot of people producing RD who could also produce SAF. And, and I'm sure some of them will pivot in that direction now there's more clarity from, from the IRA. Uh, but I'd also point out that many of these people who are producing renewable diesel are what we term obligated parties, right? They have marketing networks in, in, uh, in low carbon markets. To some degree, they got into the renewable diesel business because they needed 
to have access to uh, renewable diesel for their own networks. And they are going to potentially be reluctant to move from producing RD at the margin to producing SAF at the margin because they actually need that renewable diesel within their own marketing systems. So, so there's a lot of inertia against SAF production. Then on the other hand, you know, you have this uh, new SAF credit, which, you know, comes with the IRA. I think that, that gets you to a point where I think a lot of people who have said, no, we're not going to do SAF, we're going to focus on renewable diesel, will stop and look at it again. I don't know if it's hugely transformative from that standpoint. We'll see. But, but you know, we, we do actually have clarity around sustainable aviation fuel in the U.S., really for the first time. And so from that perspective, you know, there will be a market response, I'm sure, Paul. And, and you know, it remains to be seen exactly what, what that response will be. Uh, starting to wrap up here. So, and it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, it, it, yeah, that molecule imbalance is sort of the exciting bit here. And actually, the, so perhaps, again, I keep sort of saying it, I can just fundamentally feel a much more closer alignment between objectives, goals, and reality in tackling aviation decarbonization than perhaps you see in some of the other biofuels where they're competing with other technologies. That aside, well, that, 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 that I think has been crucial to a lot of money has been flowing over the last two, three years toward renewable diesel itself and, you know, and to SAF, all of these types of projects. Where, so where has that come from? And how do you think that is going to be impacted by obviously a, a dramatic shift in the price of money? Yeah. If you go back, this is, let me just insist on just how old I am again, Paul. But, you know, I mean, I spent most of my, my career before I retired from Coke, you know, in commodity trading. And so I always had this sarcastic line. So I'll get back to the point in a second about your bucket. And so the bucket is a comment on molecule imbalances, which is, you know, people will, will look at molecule imbalances and either say, we're just going to totally run out or we're going to drown in crude, right? Or whatever product. And so my bucket comment was always, well, have your bucket ready for, for when, uh, you know, when this dramatic imbalance happens, because you'll be able to store crude oil in your bucket and, and make money. And, and no one I ever met actually used the bucket. Although I guess when crude went negative in uh, 2020, maybe they could have actually used the bucket, but. So what am I trying to what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is, you know, the markets are efficient and they will will manage and cure imbalances through through a number of different mechanisms, many of which we won't anticipate. But you know, in commodity space, as most of the listeners here are doing, one of the things that commodity traders do to create value for society is they reduce the probability of future shortages or, or imbalances. That would also apply to what we were talking about in the agricultural markets earlier. So I'm getting to the point slowly, but although there are very clear imbalances in the, in the sustainable aviation fuel market, I'm sure the market will find ways to partly close them in ways that, the, that people, myself included, have not anticipated. So, so it's going to be a fun and interesting space. But finally, in that context, coming back to it, you know, one of the ways that you cure imbalances is through capital investment. Right. And I think that go back two years. Right. And if you wanted to access capital for renewables, you, you could have probably done a SPAC. I mean, there are some, you know, a, a few selective SPACs, you know, still still happening. But, you know, SPACs would have been a source of capital. Uh, venture capital had money to throw at it, probably could have borrowed money for a renewables project. At, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven percent 
today, you know, particularly if it's highly speculative and it's not going to generate cash flow, you know, for a number of years, then it's it's clearly going to be well into the double digits. So so that's really going to slow down, you know, capital investment. And, you know, I think again, Montana Renewables, we've been very lucky with our location, but we've also been very lucky with our our investment partners, you know, Warburg Pincus have been a fantastic partner and Stonebriar Finance. And, you know, part of the reason we've been able to to build out this project and finance it, uh, you know, at, at good cost of capital is because, you know, we're we're producing cash flow effectively now. Now we're up and running rather than a few years from now. And, and I couldn't agree more with what Jeff Curry said. I mean, I think that the increase in interest rates and, you know, the general locking up of the of the uh, uh, high yield markets is is actually a very major issue for elements of, of the renewables market coming forwards and is really going to slow down development. Well, I'm excited to say that we've got actually Edward Chancellor himself, the author of The Price of Time, Marvelous. coming on uh, uh, in, in probably the, hopefully the show after this, if not the one before. But um, so, you know, just talking about just this and what it means for the energy markets in, in general, the commodity markets in, in general. Talking of, I guess, molecule imbalances, you know, and a, a subject close to myself and my firm, of course, is the talent piece of this. And... That's a very interesting story as well, because firstly, these are these aren't skill sets that have been heavily invested in. If you go back ten years ago, mm-hmm. right, um, on the feedstock side, certainly on the marketing side, on the energy piece, but therein lies the interesting story. And you mentioned earlier, I'm not an ag guy, and you kind of always have this. This is really the bringing together of an ag world from a feedstock standpoint, uh, which is obviously crucial to profitability and an energy world from a marketing and downstream supply chain standpoint. And there's not really enough talent of either. And we've spent three years as a firm building various teams globally, um, but certainly very much in Europe and North America around RD and SAF as well. When it comes to leadership here, how do you th- bridge that gap? It, is it a bit of a false dichotomy saying you've got to have an ag person or an energy person on because that is a challenging aspect, right? You you do need leaders and commercial leadership in particular that have that broad value chain view. And you just, you don't have that, right? There are very few people that have that, have spanned both those worlds. It's it's a really, really good point. And um, one we spent a lot of time on, as, as they say, you know, like a small specialty hydrocarbon products company that makes lubricants and solvents and specialty oils and waxes, you know, and uh, how do we get in, get into the renewable space? And, and, you, and you hit exactly the issues. I don't have much more to add other than, I think actually the fact that we were, you know, this little company based in Indianapolis, Indiana, not a lot of resources, you know, completely in theory out of our debt meant that we approached these issues you talked about with a lot of humility and and assumed that we knew nothing. So we didn't just wake up and say, yeah, everything we know about petroleum, we can apply to to ag or any of that. So so I I don't have a better answer than, um, you know, it's that Rumsfeld known unknowns kind of issue. So we approached it with with humility from that perspective. And then the other one I would add, which which I'm sure you'll you'll connect with, and I'd be interested in, in your opinion on this, Paul, is you know, all markets are about relationships, but but definitely agricultural markets are, are at the forefront of that. It's um, you know, once once you are accepted and your bona fides are 
uh, seen as good and that you're trustworthy and helpful and solution oriented word gets around i mean we, we've been very solution oriented with a lot of people and make sure that we pick up our product when we say we're going to do it and make life easy for for the rendering plant or the crush plant and you know just as it would in, in oil trading but i think even more so that that kind of reputation credibility and trust goes a long way in the in the agricultural markets yeah, well, it's an incredibly small market in some ways compared to energy. But I think, as you said, ultimately, those things are true in all of the commodities space, right? You know, this is a community where, at least on the trading side, lots of people have quite similar resumes. And I think this is why HC is still in business after 20 years. You know, it's the story behind that and the how the peers view individuals that is what really is matters in terms of um, you know, sort of having those conversations about who's the right fit and their relative performance. And it's one of those, you know, it's, you always sort of feel for those individuals who perhaps come into a market a bit strong and have then damage a relationship that has consequences for the rest of their careers, right? It is very much sort of, you know, we're talking physical commodity trading here, and it's ultimately about providing solutions and working with your counterparties to get a shared win as opposed to sort of perhaps some of the outsider perspective of it's about, you know, making P&L. And sometimes, uh, sometimes those two things can be in conflict and have, you know, a long-term impact if you make the wrong decision. Totally agree. I mean, it's a service business. It's a service business, not a transactional business. Yeah. You provide a service that helps someone, you've got to, then you, you'll build a great relationship core to our values. Well, it's been a really interesting discussion and and I think one that has set a clear high level strategic picture of this space that's obviously still very nascent but seems to have a lot of not to use the pun but tailwinds behind it and you know hopefully we can we can have this discussion in a year or two and see where it's gotten to because I think you know this is probably one of those stories where I can imagine a growing you know you've got probably where the general public support is going to continue because there aren't obvious other solutions. And all of us are feeling pressure on our carbon footprints when it comes to, to flights. And you only have to go on to the United flight or wherever it might be. And at the start, you're going to get an advert. And in that advert, almost you know, 100%, you're going to get a, get a description of how they're starting to use sustainable aviation fuel. So the airlines themselves are certainly feeling the pressure. Couldn't agree more. I think that was that was a great summary and a great place to uh, to wrap up. Uh, really enjoyed spending the time, and unlike you, I think this is you know definitely a really exciting area that's undergoing incredibly rapid change. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.